Well, good morning. It is so good to see each and every one of you as we gather for worship here at Reveille Church. We welcome you, those of you who are here in person, those of you who are participating in worship with us online or later on through the week. We are excited that all of you are here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Pete Moon. I'm one of the pastors here at Reveille Church, and we all greet you and welcome you into this day of worship. Uh, If you all look at your bulletins, you know there's a whole lot of things that are happening in the life of our church, and we encourage you to take a look and uh, um, pay some attention to all of that. But let me just uh, begin by highlighting that today is a special day. Uh, We are continuing our sermon series entitled Hard Questions. For six weeks, uh, we are spending some time working through the hard questions of the Christian faith, questions that people are asking of us as a church. People are, are asking these questions of God. And this morning we come to this very hard one, uh, namely, where is God in the Middle East War? And to help us with that, Dr. Carla Works from Wesley Seminary is here. She will be preaching with us today. I'm going to say a few more words about her later uh, as she begins, prepares to take our pulpit. But uh, also take note that we're going to have a sermon next week uh, on the question, is Christianity anti-science? We're going to talk about that sometimes conflicted relationship between Christianity and science, and we will speak to the ways that they can actually work together well. And there's a number of other questions we're going to be dealing with in the weeks to come. Uh, Most of all, we want to say we are glad that you are here as we prayerfully enter into these hard questions in this time of worship. The Lord be with you.
Let's stand together for the call to worship, which you will find printed in your bulletin. O Lord, our Lord, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Yet you have made them little less than God. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us sing together to our majestic Lord using hymn number 116, The God of Abraham Praise. As we enter into the presence of the great I Am, we also offer our word of confession. Together we offer these words that are printed in our bulletin. God of all the ages, in your sight nations rise and fall, and pass through times of peril. Now when our world is troubled, be near to judge and save. May leaders be led by your wisdom. May they search your will and see it clearly. 
If we have turned from your way, reverse our ways and help us to repent. Give us your light and your truth. Let them guide us through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of this world and our Savior. Amen. Friends, the God who is the great I am is also the God who has come to us in grace through Jesus Christ. As we hold on to this truth, let us rest in the assurance that in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. Now, as forgiven people and reconciled people, we encourage you and offer you the opportunity to greet your neighbor and welcome one another in the name of Christ as our children come forward for our children's message. children are coming forward. I want to introduce myself. My name is Karen Rios. I'm the director of Children's Ministries. And for those of you who are worshiping with us online, if any children are out there, please move a little bit closer to your screen because this is your time as well. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Was it a little bit cold this morning? Yeah. yeah? Did we enjoy our snow day? Yeah, that's great. Well, today we have a guest speaker, and we have some special, a special scripture that I kind of wanted to share with you. So when you guys started school, or we went into something that was unknown, did you feel a little bit afraid, perhaps? May Louise is saying, yeah. Yeah, is there something that you can think of that you, were, you went for the first time? Go, May Louise. Perfect. And you know what? I love the fact, May Louise said, I started a new school this year. So you really know how that feels, right? To be a little bit nervous, right? About the unknown. What about you, Izzy? Okay, she went to her first concert. And once again, that's something that was a little bit nervous. Well, today, I brought a blindfold. Exactly. Eleanor said, huh? I know. What is this blindfold? going to share. So, Eleanor, what if I put this blindfold around your eyes and I told you that I wanted you to go and find a Bible, but you've got to do it blindfolded? She looks very uncertain, right? Because you would not know. What what do you think would happen? You might be bumping into people and things and maybe you wouldn't get to to the back of the church. She just said, I won't know which way to go. Perfect. I love that answer. So what if, though, I took this blindfold, I blindfolded you, but I said, I want you to take my hand and I will guide you. Would you feel better about that? Okay, she said yes, so I can bring her, I can show her which way. Well, in today's story, Abram is told to go to a place that he has never seen. He's just basically told to pack up and go. He's never seen this land. And it's almost like God has told Abraham, Abram that he's going to be blindfolded. And he's going to be lead it. But this is the beautiful thing about this scripture is that God goes with him. So the same way that I would have held Eleanor's hand and walked her down, that was what God did with Abram and Sarah. And so it's all about putting our faith and trust, especially at times that we don't know what is going to happen or what's going on. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for being there. As a person, we can put our faith and trust in when we are led 
into unknown places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You guys can go back and have a seat. Please join me in praying the prayer for illumination. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may your spirit rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. Today's first scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. This may be found on page 8 of your pew Bible. Abram, later to be known as Abraham, has lived for years in his father's household in Mesopotamia. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tyler. As we prepare to hear the word offered this day, I want to offer a word of introduction to Dr. Carla Works, who is here with us today. I've had the privilege of hearing her message twice already, and I tell you what, she brings a kind, a gracious, but also a clear understanding of the scriptures to us today, and it is a special and unique privilege to have have her with us. She is the Dean of Wesley Seminary, a professor of New Testament, specializing in some of the Pauline work and epistles. And what is fascinating for us today is that she specializes in thinking about the New Testament, but also how Paul and others look at Israel's scriptures, which we speak of as the Old Testament. So she brings us a great perspective to address and deal with our question about today about where is God in this Middle East war. Uh, But we are thrilled to welcome her, and uh, we invite you to come to our pulpit, Dr. Works. Well, first, why don't we hear the second lesson? The second lesson comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, and if you're following along on your pew Bible, it's page 947. Hear these words from Paul. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, children, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son than an heir through God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. Amen. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for welcoming me to Reveille. This is my first time to come here, so I was very thankful for Karen's children's message that God indeed follows us, <laughs> goes with us uh, the first time we go somewhere. So thank you, uh, Karen, for that wonderful children's message. When I agreed to preach several months ago, I was looking forward to joining you in this season of Epiphany. I, I am a lectionary preacher most of the time, and I had looked forward, and I saw that 1 Corinthians was in the lectionary for today. In fact, my husband back at home is preaching from 1 Corinthians. But I was so excited because I am just now finishing a commentary on 1 Corinthians. Uh, And then a few months later, I found out, I had a conversation with Reverend Moon, that you all would be in a sermon series. Well, I am a team player. So, of course, I want to participate in a sermon series. And then I found out that the sermon series was on difficult questions. And I asked, well, which difficult question am I to receive? Well, we would like for you to talk about where is God in this Middle East war? Hmm. Well, if, I mean, you don't have to do it, he said. You, you could preach on you know, the lectionary. That's fine. I see you're very excited. But they might be disappointed. <laughs> After all, they will have gone through a few weeks of the series already and a few more to come. But here's the thing. <clears throat> the tragic events that are happening in Israel and Gaza will not allow me to be silent. So today we are all going to reflect on this question of where is God in this Middle East war? We all watched with horror and shock on October the 7th, the Hamas surprise attack on Israel, with civilians being targeted. And I will not recount the horrors of that day, but I will not forget them either. Echoes of the Holocaust came to the forefront, but then retaliation came, and boy, did things escalate. All the while, noise of protest filled the globe, and a war of words quickly accompanied the cacophony of missile strikes, bombings, and bloodshed. The choosing of sides suddenly became more important than standing in solidarity with those who were mourning or crying out for a just solution or even seeking peace. Everyone was claiming God on their side, but where is God in this Middle East war? Where is God among the Israeli young adult concert goers? 
Where is God in Gaza as the citizens there starve and scramble for their lives as thousands and thousands and thousands die, as hospitals fail and churches literally crumble? Where is God as this war has expanded beyond these boundaries and has become part of the larger region with other countries getting involved. Where is God in the Middle East? This is, to be sure, a hard question, but a worthy one. At the core of this question is another. Isn't this the land that God promised to Abraham? Some of you may be wondering, didn't God once give this land to Israel? I mean, after all, we just heard the scripture read. Whose land is it now? Does it still belong to Israel? Is the state of Israel today the same Israel of biblical times thousands of years ago? The frequent skirmishes and wars in this land that we call holy are fraught with theological questions about what we thought we knew about God and the world. And in the middle of it all is a land that used to be quite fertile. But now it is littered with landmines and implements of war. It's scarred and marred by violence and bloodshed. A land that looks nothing like the goodness of God's creation a land itself that is suffering. If we pause for a moment, I think we can all appreciate the importance of land. Now, I grew up in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, and I have found out I am not the only one. We are hillbillies. Now, I love those mountains, And I have not lived there in over 30 years, but I still see myself as an Arkansan. And yes, before you ask, I still cheer for the Arkansas Razorbacks, but only God knows why. (laughs) Now, I grew up on a hilltop that overlooked the Arkansas River and a little town of Dyer, Arkansas, down below. That little town had a whopping 600 people in it. Now, my parents left that mountaintop a long time ago, but before they did, my father cut down a giant red oak tree, and he made two tables, one for me and one for my twin sister. And if you were to visit my home in Maryland, you would be served a meal off of that red oak table. It is our family table. I have carried that table with me everywhere that I go because it is a piece of the land that I love, a land that I called home. And that land continues to be a blessing to me and through it, a table of blessing to others. Land becomes part of us, home, where one belongs and one finds belonging. And through that belonging, we are blessed to become a blessing to others. When we consider the question of the Middle East, we are really considering the question of land. In his classic book on the land, an Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann lays out well the cycles of land in terms of home and homelessness. In Scripture, there is a move from Abraham's homelessness to his descendants finding home. And then their loss of that home and their futile attempts to grasp it. Jesus is born in this period of homelessness, only to offer his followers a new sense of home. We simply cannot appreciate the story of Israel without the story of the land, the promised land. The gift of that land was just that, a gift. A gift that God intended to be a blessing not only to God's people, but through them a table of blessing to all nations. As the scriptures claim, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The land belonged to God. 
You are familiar with the stories of land and land loss, home and homelessness that course throughout the Bible. But there remains this promise, this promise in Genesis chapter 12, a promise that lingers with us in both Testaments. It is a blessing to Abraham and promises to give Abram's descendants a great nation and to give his offspring a particular land. Now, we cannot truly appreciate why there is so much longing and striving for a particular land if we do not remember this promise. It is a promise at the core of faith and identity. Now, I think that we as Christians can understand and appreciate that promise as part of identity for our Jewish siblings, but we fail to see it in our own faith. Long ago, we gave up on any idea of landedness. We spiritualized God's promises. We became rather calloused to the stories of longing for a land. Maybe, maybe, that enabled us to more easily cope with our own historical experiences of dispossession and hopes for liberation. Whatever the cause, history took a shift for us away from the land. Yet, even in the New Testament, we see the hope of God's intervention in history take the shape of land. Jesus claims that the meek will inherit the earth. The hungry are sated. The hope is for God's kingdom to come to earth. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. It is hope that God would intervene and set the world right. God would intervene and eradicate the powers of injustice on earth. Now, as a Paul scholar, I find Paul's take on the promise of land rather fascinating. Galatians forces us to grapple with these blessings to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Paul takes up explicitly who Abraham's heirs are. And in Galatians 3.29, he writes, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. But we must be careful. Paul does not have a replacement theology. He does not think that the church replaces Israel and God's promises. After all, in Romans chapter 9, he lays out the advantages of being Jewish. And the promises of God are among those advantages. And the promises of God are irrevocable. But he's certainly willing to re-examine, redefine, and reevaluate who may be called heirs of the promise. But I think with that part of his theology, we're quite familiar. After all, I'm looking at a whole lot of Virginian Gentiles who call themselves children of God. God's promises expand to incorporate not just Jew, but Gentile, and even Arkansans and Virginians and everyone in between. Gentile just means nations. But what about the land? Where does that leave the land? In Romans chapter 4, Paul states that the promise to Abraham is not merely for descendants, but for those heirs to inherit the whole world. Not just a sliver of it, the whole world. Paul was not the first one to broaden the scope of this land promise. By the time of Paul, other Jewish writers, during a period of landlessness, had reinterpreted Genesis 12, reinterpreted those promises to Abraham, not as a mere territory that simply wasn't big enough for their God. No, the Creator God would reclaim the whole of the created order. By the time that Paul steps onto the scene, the hope is for God's reign over the whole world. And that makes Paul's mission to the Galatians all the more interesting. Do you know what is particularly fascinating about Paul's message here in Galatians? 
Paul is writing this letter, a circular letter, to a whole region of folks. But he's writing to a people group who themselves are landless. Their name in Greek derives from the term for a people searching for land. They are among the greatest threats to the Roman power and Roman rule. And Rome made an example out of their ancestors. Rome crushed them, exploited them, dispossessed them of their lands, paraded their vanquished warriors around their former towns, and celebrated these Roman victories in art that is still visible in many of the ruins of these cities today. Roman writers mocked the Galatians as an uncivilized and barbaric people who were incapable of peace. Uh, They were only capable of being civilized if a superior power like Rome subdued them, shackled them, and restrained them. And yet, the Spirit of God is on the loose among the notorious Galatians. Paul preaches a gospel to them, a vanquished, landless people, of a God who can not only offer them a place of belonging, but a God who promises to intervene in history and make the whole world right. And Paul calls them children of Abraham, children of the promise. They will inherit the world. This is good news for a landless people. And we tend to miss this. We are consumed, as the first century church was, with the scandal of God's grace to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. How could Gentiles possibly be inheritors of Abraham's promise? How could Gentiles be called the children of God? That is the church-splitting argument of the first century. That's why general conferences, special sessions, and church councils are called. Paul, too, spends all of his time and energy arguing for the inclusion of the nations. But it doesn't take away Paul's gospel of new creation. The boldness of a hope that one day every knee will bow on earth, under the earth, and above the earth. To Jesus, the hope that God would make all things right. Our Bible ends with a revelation of this new creation. Revelation tells us of a new Jerusalem, a magnificent city. The Greek historian Herodotus said that the ideal city is a square, but the author of Revelation takes it a step further. He describes the city as a cube, it is a huge city. 12,000 stadia, or 1,500 miles in width, depth, and height. The author gives us these details of its dimensions to impress us. It's not that it's just a little bit larger than the first century Jerusalem. This city is as large as the entire landmass of the Roman Empire of the first century. It's as large as the known world of the seer. This new Jerusalem comes from heaven because only God can grant it. Every good gift comes from God. The biblical witness, therefore, has bookends. Genesis, a creator God who longs to bless all creation, and Revelation, a paradise large enough for all peoples of the earth. Through this one blessing of land, God always had all nations and all lands in view. We are creatures of a creator who would stop at nothing to bless creation. And our very existence is rooted in a sense of belonging to this creator who is even right now making all things new. The gift of the land itself demonstrated that God had not abandoned God's creation, but that through this one area, God longed to redeem and bless the world. 
that biblical witness is not just hope for a small territoried space, but that through that space there would be a table of blessing for all. So where is God in this war? God has always been there for those who call upon the name of the Lord. Not just in this land, but in the whole earth. This God has a track record of hearing the cries of the oppressed. This God has a track record of forcing us to rethink everything we thought we knew. To question our stereotypes and even our sense of righteousness. And if we are looking for God, we should be looking in the most unexpected places and among the most unexpected people. If the first century church found God working among the oppressed and landless Galatians, where might we find God right now? Who might God be trying to bless right now? Who might God be trying to save right now? After all, this Middle Eastern land and all lands belong to this Lord. And as Paul says, this is a God of peace. And we are called to be people of peace and to use our sense of belonging, our landedness, if you will, to be a blessing to others, to bring the goodness of our table to the whole world. So where is God? In this season of epiphany, God just might surprise us. Thanks be to God. Amen. O God of every nation, of every race and land, redeem your whole creation with your almighty hand. I invite you to stand and sing these words as found on page 435 in your hymnal.
together we say what we believe. You'll find our statement of faith on page 884 of our hymnals. Let us offer these words together. We believe in the one God, creator and sustainer of all things, father of all nations, the source of all goodness and beauty, all truth and love. We believe in Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, our teacher, example, and redeemer, the savior of the world. We believe in the Holy Spirit, God present with us for guidance, for comfort, and for strength. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, in the life of love and prayer, and in grace equal to every need. We believe in the Word of God, contained in the Old and New Testaments, as a sufficient rule both of faith and of practice. We believe in the Church, those who are united in the living Lord, for the purpose of worship and service. We believe in the reign of God as the divine will realized in human society and in the family of God, where we are all brothers and sisters. We believe in the final triumph of righteousness and in the life everlasting. Amen. Let us please be seated. Let us pray. O God of all nations, God of all lands, God of all peoples, God of all the earth, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for our homes, for our land, for our family and for our friends. So many of us, O oh God, are blessed with shelter and clothes and with heat in these cold and bitter days, but we are also mindful of so many of us who do not have these gifts. And we pray that you be a very special help in these cold, bitter winter days for those who are without shelter. 
We pray this day for anyone who is sick in any way in mind, body, or spirit, and we pray for healing and for strength for them. And we also pray for all doctors, for all nurses, for all medical personnel, for all hospitals who are dealing and caring and serving for so many who are sick and suffering these days. We pray this day, O God, for comfort and for peace for all who are grieving, and especially we lift up to you Lisa Carter and her family after the death of her father, for Dale Ennis and his family after the death of his mother. O God, hear the cry of all who are oppressed this day. Hear the cry of all those who are in need of hope, of peace, and of your love in our world around us. And especially we pray for peace in the Middle East, for peace in Ukraine, for peace wherever there is conflict and war. Bring your justice, bring your love, bring your peace to the world around us, O God. And we pray that you continue to make all things new. Continue to bless us and our world and to help us to use our blessing to make a difference in the world around us. Hear these prayers that we lift up to you out loud, and now in the silence of our hearts, we lift up to you any personal concerns that we may have. Hear our prayers this day, O God, as we lift them all up to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we continue to respond to the word read and proclaimed, I invite our ushers to come forward that we may return to God our tithes and our offerings this day.
Let us pray. O God, who makes all things new, O God, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, we thank you and praise you this day for all of our many gifts and all of our many blessings. We are reminded this day, O God, that you show up in unexpected places through unexpected people. We pray that you would be in the midst of these gifts that we return back to you this day. Bless these gifts, that they may be a blessing to us, to our community, and to our world. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is We Pray for Peace. The words are printed in your bulletin. see the Spirit at work, because that same Spirit emboldens us, transforms us, and equips us to be ambassadors of God's peace in our world. Go now and be a blessing 
to others. Amen.